1. Introduction to the Commentaries on Freud's Papers on Technique The Seminar Confusion and Analysis History is Not the Past Theories of the Ego I would very much like to start off this new year for which I offer you my best wishes by telling you the fun is over. Last term, you had little else to do but listen to me. I declare that this term now starting, I trust, I hope, I venture to hope, that I too will hear from you a bit. It's actually the law and tradition of the seminar that those who participate in it bring more to it than a purely personal effort, a contribution through effective communication. This can only come from those involved in the work in the most direct manner, from those for whom these seminars on texts take on their full meaning, from those who are involved in a variety of capacities in our practice. All this does not exclude your obtaining from me answers that I will be in a position to give you. It would be particularly appreciated if everyone were to give according to his or her resources, his or her utmost, in contributing to this new phase of the seminar. Your utmost consists in not replying with a long face, saying it just so happens that this week you are particularly heavily burdened when I call upon one or other of you and consign a specific segment of our common task to him or her. I am talking here to those who are part of the psychoanalytic group that we represent. I would like you to realize that if it is constituted as such, as an autonomous group, it is for a task that for each of us brings with it nothing less than the future, the meaning of everything which we do and will have to do for the rest of our lives. If you are not coming to put into question everything you do, I don't see why you're here. Why would those who do not sense the meaning of this task remain tied to us rather than joining up with some sort of bureaucracy or other? 1. These reflections are particularly pertinent to my way of thinking, just when we are going to tackle what are commonly called Freud's papers on technique. Papers on technique is a term that a certain tradition has already fixed upon. During Freud's lifetime, a small octavo volume was published with the title Zur Technik der Psychoanalyse und zur Metapsychologie, which brought together a certain number of Freud's writings dating from 1904 to 1919, whose title, presentation, contents indicated that they dealt with psychoanalytic method. The motivation and justification for this format is that there are good grounds for cautioning an inexperienced practitioner who would like to embark upon analysis so that he might avoid a certain number of confusions regarding the practice of the method and also regarding its essence. There are passages in these writings which are extremely important for understanding the progress that the development of practice has seen over these years. What one sees gradually appearing there are notions fundamental to the mode of operation of the analytic therapy, the notion of resistance and the function of transference, 
the mode of operation and of intervention in the transference, and even up to a certain point, the essential role of the transference neurosis. There is no need, then, to underline any further the quite special interest this little collection of writings possesses. To be sure, this way of bringing them together is not entirely satisfactory, and the term papers on technique is perhaps not what gives it its unity. They possess no less of a unity for all that. The whole attests to a stage in the development of Freud's thought. We will study it from this perspective. There is an intermediary step here. It follows on from the initial development of what someone, an analyst who does not always have a way with words, but who on this occasion made a rather fortunate, even beautiful, find, has called Freud's seminal experience. It antedates the elaboration of the structural theory. Note, the structural theory is the shorthand term for Freud's theory of the ego, id, and superego, introduced with the ego and the id, 1923. End note. The beginnings of this intermediary step should be placed between 1904 and 1909. The article on the psychoanalytic method appeared in 1904. Note, Freud's psychoanalytic procedure, 1904, end note. Some say that this is where the word psychoanalysis first appears, which isn't true since Freud had used it well before but what matters is that it is there used in a formal manner, in the very title of the article. 1909, the date of the lectures at Clark University, Freud's journey to America, accompanied by his son, Jung. If we pick up the thread again in the year 1920, we find the theory of the agencies, the structural, or again, the metapsychological theory, as Freud called it. That is another theoretical development which he bequeathed to us out of his experience and his discovery. As you see, the so-called papers on technique are spread between these two advances. It is what gives them their meaning. It is a mistake to think that they owe their unity to the fact that Freud discusses technique in them. In a certain sense, Freud never ceased discussing technique. I only have to remind you of the Studien über Historie, which is nothing other than one long account of the discovery of the analytic technique. That is where we witness it in the making, and that is what makes these studies priceless. If we wanted to give a complete and systematic account of the development of Freud's technique, we would have to start with them. I have not taken up the Studien über Hysterie for the simple reason that they are not easily accessible, since not all of you read German, not even English. To be sure, there are more reasons than just those of expediency, leading me to choose instead the papers on technique. The interpretation of dreams is itself always endlessly about technique. If we put to one side what he wrote on mythological, anthropological, and cultural topics, hardly any of Freud's work fails to tell us something about technique. I do not need to emphasize that an article like Analysis Terminable and Interminable, which appeared around 1934, is one of the most important on technique. 
I would now like to stress what, in my opinion, is the best frame of mind in which to conduct our commentary on these papers this term. This is a matter that should be settled today. Part 2. If we are under the impression that we are here to stand back in admiration of the Freudian texts and marvel at them, we will certainly be well satisfied. The freshness and vivacity of these papers is not surpassed by any of Freud's other writings. At times, his personality is revealed in them in so direct a manner that one cannot fail to remark it. The simplicity and frankness of tone are in and of themselves a kind of education. More specifically, the ease with which the question of practical rules to be observed is dealt with shows us the extent to which they were, for Freud, an instrument in the sense that one says one has a hammer firmly in hand. Firmly held by this hand of mine, he says in short, and this is how I am accustomed to holding it. Others may possibly prefer a marginally different instrument which sits better in their hand. You will come across passages that will tell you that far more clearly than I do in this metaphorical way. So the codification of rules of technique is dealt with in these papers with a freedom which in and of itself might well be a sufficient education and even on a first reading bears fruit and yields its reward. There is nothing more wholesome and liberating, and nothing demonstrates more clearly that the real issue lies elsewhere. But that's not all. In the manner in which Freud communicates to us what we could call the paths of the truth of his thought, there is a quite different aspect to be discovered in those passages, which may perhaps appear of secondary importance, but which are nonetheless quite perceptible. It is the long-suffering side of his personality, the feeling he has of the necessity of authority, which in his case is not without a certain fundamental depreciation of what anyone who has something to communicate or teach can expect from those who listen to and follow him. In many a place, we come across a measure of profound contempt for the manner in which these things are made use of and understood. As you will see, I even believe that one finds in him a very specific disparagement of the human raw material made available to him by the society in which he lived. Undoubtedly, this is what allows us to catch a glimpse of why Freud, in contrast to what happens in his writings, mobilized the full weight of his authority so as to assure, so he believed, the future of analysis. He both excluded all manner of doctrinal dissensions, quite real dissensions, which emerged and at the same time was quite imperious as to what could be organized around him as the means for the transmission of his teaching. All this is only a glimpse of what this reading reveals of the historical aspects of Freud's activity and presence. Are we going to restrict ourselves to this level? Certainly not, if only because it would be quite ineffectual, despite the interest, the stimulation, the amusement and relaxation that we might expect from it. It is always in relation to the question, what do we do when we do analysis? that up to now I have offered this commentary of Freud. The scrutiny of these short papers will be undertaken in the same spirit. 
Hence, my starting point is the current state of technique, what is said, written, and done concerning analytic technique. I don't know if most of you, I hope at least some, are fully aware of the following fact. When I am referring to the present, 1954, this brand new year, we examine now the manner in which the diverse practitioners of analysis think, express, conceive of their technique. We conclude that things have come to such a pass that it would not be an exaggeration to call it the most radical confusion. I can tell you that right now, amongst those who are analysts and who think, which already limits the field, there isn't perhaps a single one who, deep down, has the same conception as any other of his contemporaries or peers as to what one does, what one aims to do, what one achieves, what is going on in analysis. It has even got to the point where we could amuse ourselves with the little game of comparing the most extreme conceptions. We would see that they arrive at formulations which are strictly contradictory, without even seeking out those who cherish paradoxes. Anyhow, there aren't that many of them. The question is of such import that the various theoreticians tackle it with no inclination to whimsicality, and humor in general is excluded from their laborious pontifications on therapeutic results, their forms, their procedures, and the means by which one obtains them. They content themselves with hanging on to a balustrade, to a guardrail offered by some corner or another of Freud's theoretical system. This alone gives each of them the guarantee that he is still communicating with those who are his fellow analysts and colleagues. The Freudian language acts as the go-between by which a channel of communication is kept open between practitioners who hold to manifestly different conceptions of their therapeutic activity and, what is more, of the general form of this interhuman relation called psychoanalysis. When I say interhuman relation, you can already see that I am describing things the way they are today. Indeed, the elaboration of the notion of the relation between analyst and analysin is the path taken by contemporary analytic doctrines in trying to rediscover a firm basis for the realities of that experience. Certainly, it represents the most fertile line of thought traced out since Freud's death. Valint calls it a two-body psychology. Note. English in the original, and note, a term which, in fact, is not his, but which he borrowed from the late Brickman, one of the rare souls to have had a modicum of theoretical originality in analytic circles since Freud's death. Note, see John Brickman, Selected Contributions to Psychoanalysis, 1957, in particular, The Factor of Number in Individual and Group Dynamics, 1950, Methodology and Research in Psychopathology, 1951, Number and the Human Sciences, 1951, see also Michael Belint on Love and Hate, 1951, in Primary Love and Psychoanalytic Technique. Balint's phrase is two-person psychology. More details in the note. End note. Around this formula, one may quite easily align all studies on object relations, on the importance of counter-transference, and on a certain set of related terms amongst which fantasy stands in the foreground. 
The imaginary interreaction between analysis and an analyst is thus something we shall have to take into consideration. Does this mean that this is the way to locate our problem precisely? On the one hand, yes. On the other, no. It is very worthwhile to stimulate research of this character inasmuch as it highlights the originality of what is at stake when compared to a one-body psychology. Note, English in the original, and note, the conventional constructive psychology. But is it sufficient to say that we are dealing with a relation between two individuals? It is in this way that we are brought to recognize the impasses into which theories of technique are currently led. I am not in a position to say more to you about this for the moment, even though as those who are old hands in the seminar know, you are obviously aware that there is no two-body psychology note English in the original, end note, without the intervention of a third element. If, as we must, we take speech as the central feature of our perspective, then it is within a three- rather than two-term relation that we have to formulate the analytic experience in its totality, which doesn't mean to say that we cannot express fragments, pieces, and tail-ends of it in other registers. In that way, you can grasp the kind of obstacles the theoreticians have come up against. It's really very easy to understand if the foundation of the inter-analytic relation is truly something that we are obliged to represent as being triadic. There are a number of different ways of choosing two elements from out of this triad. You can put the accent on one or other of the three dyadic relations that are set up within it. As you will see, this furnishes a practical means of classifying a certain number of theoretical elaborations concerning technique that have been proposed. Part 3. All this may appear to you at the moment to be a little abstract, and I want to do my best to tell you something a bit more concrete to bring you into this discussion. I am going to remind you quickly of Freud's seminal experience, which I mentioned earlier on, since, in fact, that is what was partly the object of our lectures of last term, totally centered, as they were, on the notion that the complete reconstitution of the subject's history is the element that is essential, constitutive, and structural for analytic progress. I believe that I have demonstrated that that is where Freud started from. What is at issue for him is the understanding of an individual case. That is what gives each of the five great case histories their value. The three that we have already looked at, pondered over, and worked on together in previous years show you just that. Freud's progress, the discoveries he made, lies in the way he considers the singularity of a case. Consider it in its singularity? What does that mean? That means essentially that for him, the interest, the essence, the basis, the dimension proper to analysis is the reintegration by the subject of his history right up to the furthermost perceptible limits, that is to say, into a dimension that goes well beyond the limits of the individual. To lay the foundations, deduce it, demonstrate it, employing a thousand subtleties in Freud's texts, is what we have accomplished together over the last few years. 
What reveals this dimension is the accent that Freud puts in each case on those points that it is essential to overcome by means of the technique and which are what I will call the bearings, situation, of the history. Does this amount to placing the accent on the past, as it may appear at first sight? I show you that it is not as simple as that. History is not the past. History is the past insofar as it is historicized in the present. Historicized in the present because it was lived in the past. The path of restitution of the subject's history takes the form of a quest for the restitution of the past. We should consider this restitution as the but to be aimed at by the recourses of technique. Throughout Freud's works, in which, as I have told you, technical suggestions are to be found at every turn, you will discover that the restitution of the past retained its prominent position in his preoccupations right to the end. That is why the very questions which are opened up by Freud's discovery are raised by this restitution of the past, and they turn out to be none other than the questions which up to now have been avoided skirted round in analysis, I mean, namely those which bear on the function of time in the realization of the human subject. When we return to the origin of the Freudian experience, when I say origin, I do not mean historical origin, but point source, one realizes that this is what has always kept analysis alive, despite the profoundly different garbs it has been given. Again and again, Freud emphasizes the restitution of the past, even when, with the conception of the three agencies, you will see that one can even talk of four, he gives a considerable extension to the structural point of view, favoring thereby a certain orientation which will increasingly focus on the analytic relation in the present, on the here and now of the session, between the four walls of analysis. To back up what I am telling you, all I need do is cite an article he published in 1934, Konstruktionen in der Analyse, in which what is at issue again and as ever is the reconstruction of the subject's history. Note, Constructions in Analysis, 1937, more details in the note, and note. You won't find a more characteristic instance of the persistence of this point of view in all of Freud's work. In this article, it is something like a final insistence on this pivotal theme. We have here something like the distilled essence, the point, the last word on what has been at stake all along in a work as central as the Wolfman. What value does the subject's reconstructed past have? One could say that Freud touches there though one senses it in many other places in his corpus, on a notion that was emerging in the course of our discussions last term, and which is roughly the following. The fact that the subject relives comes to remember, in the intuitive sense of the word, the formative events of his existence is not in itself so very important. What matters is what he reconstructs of it. On this point, there are some striking turns of phrase. After all, Freud writes, Träume, dreams, sind auch erinnern, are also a way of remembering. Note, from the History of an Infantile Neurosis, 1918, 
more details in the note and the note. He even goes so far as to say that screen memories themselves are, after all, an adequate representative of what is at issue. Note, item, standard editions, 17, and note. To be sure, in their manifest form as memories, they certainly are not, but if we work on them sufficiently, they render up to us the equivalent of what we are looking for. Can you see where this is all leading to? It leads, within Freud's own conception, to an idea that what is involved is a reading, a qualified and skilled translation of the cryptogram representing what the subject is conscious of at the moment. What am I going to say now? Of himself. No, not only of himself, of himself and of everything else. That is to say, of the whole of his system. As I told you a moment ago, the restitution of the subject's wholeness appears in the guise of a restoration of the past. But the stress is always placed more on the side of reconstruction than on that of reliving, in the sense we have grown used to calling affective. The precise reliving that the subject remembers something as truly belonging to him as having truly been lived through with which he communicates and which he adopts, we have the most explicit indication in Freud's writings that that is not what is essential. What is essential is reconstruction, the term he employs right up until the end. There is something truly remarkable here, which would be paradoxical if we gained access to it without having an awareness of the meaning it may take on in the register of speech, which I am trying here to highlight as being necessary to the understanding of our experience. I would say, when all is said and done, it is less a matter of remembering than of rewriting history. I tell you what there is in Freud that doesn't imply that he was right. But this thread is continuous, permanently subjacent to his thought's development. He never abandoned something which can only be put in the way I've found of saying it, rewriting history, a formula which allows one to put in perspective the various directions that he gives apropos of little details in the narratives within analysis. Part 4. To the Freudian conception that I am expounding to you, I could counterpose completely different conceptions of the analytic experience. Certain authors maintain that analysis is a sort of homeopathic discharge by the subject of his fantasized understanding of the world. In their view, this fantasized understanding should little by little, within the day-to-day -day experience taking place in the consulting room, boil down transform itself and achieve a new equilibrium within a given relation to the real. What is emphasized here, as you see, in clear contrast to Freud, is the transformation of the fantasized relation in the course of a relation which one calls, without further ado, real. Certainly, one can formulate these matters in a more open fashion, sufficiently nuanced to accommodate the plurality of the expression, as has been done by someone to whom I have already referred here, who has written on technique, none of which, in the end, stops it from coming back to that. Some peculiar repercussions thereby result, 
which we will be in a position to point to when we come to our commentary on the Freudian texts. How did the practice that Freud initiated get transformed into a manipulation of the analyst-analysis relationship in the sense that I have just outlined? That's the fundamental question that we will be encountering in the course of the study we are undertaking. The ideas that Freud introduced in the period immediately after that of the papers and technique, namely those of the three agencies, were greeted, employed, and dealt with in such a way as to result in this transformation. Of the three, the ego took on the greatest importance. Since then, all subsequent development of analytic technique has revolved around the conception of the ego, and that is where we must locate the source of all the difficulties arising out of the theoretical elaboration on this development in practice. There is, without doubt, a world of difference between what we actually do in this sort of den where the patient talks to us and where from time to time we talk to him and the theoretical account that we give of it. Even in Freud, where the gap is infinitely more narrow, we have the impression that some distance remains. I am certainly not the only one to have asked myself the question, what was Freud really doing? Burglar asked this question in plain black and white and answers that we don't really know much apart from what Freud himself allowed us to see when he himself sat down, also in plain black and white, the fruits of certain of his experiences, namely his five great case histories. They are the best introduction we have to the manner in which Freud behaved. But it really does seem as if the character of this experience cannot be reproduced in its concrete reality, for one very simple reason on which I have already insisted, the singularity of the analytic experience when it comes to Freud. It really was Freud who opened up this path of experience. This in itself gave him an absolutely unique perspective, as his dialogue with the patient demonstrates. As one can sense all the time, the patient is for him only a sort of prop or question, or sometimes even a check along the path that he, Freud, took alone. Hence the drama, in the true sense of the word, of his quest. The drama which, in each of the cases he gave us, ends in failure. Throughout his life, Freud followed the paths that he opened up in the course of this experience, attaining, in the end, something that one could call a promised land. One cannot say, however, that he entered into it. You need only read what can be considered to be his testament. Analysis terminable and interminable in order to see that if there was one thing that he was aware of, it was that he hadn't entered into it, into the promised land. This article isn't recommended reading for all and sundry for anyone who knows how to read. Luckily, there are not that many people who do know how to read. It is a difficult one to digest if you happen to be an analyst. If you aren't an analyst, you don't give a toss. Those who find themselves in a position to follow Freud are confronted with the question as to how the paths we inherit were adopted, reapprehended, and rethought through. 
So we cannot do anything else but gather together what we will contribute to it under the heading of a critique, a critique of analytic technique. Technique is and can only be of any value to the extent that we understand wherein lies the fundamental question for the analyst who adopts it. Well then, we should note first of all that we hear the ego spoken of as the ally of the analyst, and not only the ally, but the sole source of knowledge. The only thing we know of is the ego. That's the way it is usually put. Anna Freud, Penicel, nearly all those who have written about analysis since 1920 say it over and over again. We speak only to the ego. We are in communication with the ego alone. Everything is channeled via the ego. On the other hand, in contrast, every advance made by this ego psychology can be summed up as follows. The ego is structured exactly like a symptom. At the heart of the subject, it is only a privileged symptom, the human symptom par excellence, the mental illness of man. To translate the analytic ego in this quick and shorthand manner is at best to sum up what emerges from a straightforward reading of Anna Freud's book, The Ego and the Mechanisms of Defense. One cannot avoid being struck by the fact that the ego is constructed and is to be located within the subject as a whole, just as a symptom. Nothing differentiates the one from the other. No objection can be made to this quite dazzling argument. No less dazzling is the fact that things have got so confused that the catalog of defense mechanisms which make up the ego is as heterogeneous a list as one could conceive of. Anna Freud herself underscores this very clearly. To bring repression closer to notions such as the turning of the drive against its object or the inversion of its aims is to put side by side elements which are in no respect homogeneous. Given the point where we still find ourselves, perhaps we cannot do any better now, but we can still highlight the profound ambiguity of the conception analysts entertain of the ego, which is the only thing to which one has access, despite also being only another hindrance, a failure, act of monkey, a slip. At the start of his chapters on analytic interpretation, Fenichel speaks of the ego as everyone does and feels the need to say that it plays the essential role of being a function by which the subject learns the meaning of words. So, from the very start then, Fenichel is at the heart of the matter. Everything is there. The issue is knowing whether the meaning of the ego exceeds the self, moi. If this function is a function of the ego, everything that follows in Fenichel's account is incomprehensible, and besides, he doesn't press the point. I say that it is a slip of the pen, since it isn't pursued, and everything that goes on from there amounts to saying the opposite, and leads him to the conclusion that, in the end, the id and the ego amounts to exactly the same thing, which isn't about to clarify matters. But I repeat, either the subsequent argument is unthinkable 
or it is not true that the ego is the function through which the subject learns the meaning of words. This ego, what is it? What is the subject caught up in, which is beyond the meaning of words, a completely different matter, language, whose role is formative, quite fundamental in his history. With respect to Freud's papers on technique, we will have to ask ourselves these questions, which will take us a long way, but only on condition that it is, first of all, in relation to each of our experiences. It will also be incumbent upon us when we try to engage in discussions taking as our starting point the present state of theory and technique to ask ourselves what was already implicit in what Freud brought us. What, perhaps, already inclined him towards those formulae to which we are now led in our practices? What constraints might there be in the manner in which we are led to look at things? Or in what sense does something that has happened since amount to being a development, a more rigorous systematization, which corresponds better to reality? This is the register within which our commentary will take on its meaning. Part 5 I would like to give you a still clearer sense of how I envisage the seminar. At the end of the last few lectures I delivered to you, you had a taste of a reading of what can be called the psychoanalytic myth. The direction of this reading is not so much that of criticism as of gauging the reality which confronted it and to which it offers its mythical reply. Well, the problem is more restricted, but also much more pressing, where technique is concerned. Indeed, the scrutiny that we will have to engage in of everything pertaining to our technique falls within the purview of our own discipline. If we have to differentiate the actions and the behavior of the subject from what he says to us about them in the session, I would say that our actual behavior in the analytic session is just as far from the theoretical account that we give of it. But this is only a first truth, which only has significance insofar as it may be reversed, and at the same time mean just as close. The fundamental absurdity of interhuman behavior can only be comprehended in the light of this system as Melanie Klein so happily called it, not knowing, as usual, what she was saying, called the human ego, namely that set of defenses, of denials, negation, of dams, of inhibitions, of fundamental fantasies which orient and direct the subject. Well then, the theoretical conception we have of our technique, even if it doesn't coincide exactly with what we are doing, doesn't structure any the less or motivate any the less the least of our interventions with the sad patients. And that is precisely what is so serious, because we have effectively allowed ourselves, in the sense revealed to us by analysis, in which we allow ourselves things without knowing it, to bring our ego into play in the analysis. Since it is argued that one is trying to bring about the patient's readaptation to the real, 
one really ought to find out if it is the analyst's ego which offers the measure of the real. To be sure, it isn't enough to have a definite conception of the ego for our ego to come into play like a bull in the china shop of our relation to the patient. But a certain way of conceiving of the function of the ego in analysis does have some relation to a certain practice of analysis that we might well call inauspicious. I am only opening up the question. It is our task to resolve it. The totality of each of our world systems. I am referring to the concrete system which doesn't have to be already spelled out for it to be there, which does not pertain to the order of the unconscious, but which acts in the manner in which we express ourselves in daily life, in the smallest spontaneous detail of our discourse. Is that something which must in actual fact, yea or nay, be employed in analysis as the yardstick? I think I have opened up the question sufficiently for you now to see the point of what we can do together. Manoni, will you get together with one of your neighbors, Anzio, for instance, to study the notion of resistance in those of Freud's writings available to you under the title On Psychoanalytic Technique, published by Presse Universitaire? Note. The French book entitled De la Technique Psychanalytique. More details in the note and note. Don't overlook the concluding lectures of the introductory lectures. Will two others, Perrier and Granov, for instance, collaborate on the same topic? Then we will see how to proceed. We will let ourselves be guided by experience itself. 13th of January, 1954.